Well, welcome again. I, I know I got to do the welcome and the announcements this morning, but welcome again. It's so good to have you with us at this gathering of Hope Bible Fellowship. And uh, again, just so thrilled, really thrilled to be here with you and, and, and to pastor you as, as, as a people. Um, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be uh, in a passage that's familiar for the last few weeks. I, this is week three of our series, God and Money. Um, we have one more Sunday after today. So next week will be the final Sunday of God and Money. And then we're going to move on uh, to a couple of one-off sermons before we dip into our next book of the Bible. And uh, I'm going to announce that to you soon, but not today. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, again, I'm indebted to Capitol Hill Baptist Church and they're, they're just wonderful material in their treatment of this subject. It's been so helpful to me as I prepare. And so uh, some of the things you'll hear have just come straight from them, okay? Um, and I just want to make that known ahead of time. Um, so as I sat and, and, you know, I sat and I toil over what to say and how to do it. Um, uh, you know, to summarize the last couple of weeks... Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that, that we don't own what we own, right? We don't own what we own. God actually owns all of it. It's all truly God's, and he has graciously given us what we have for us to steward or to manage well, okay? We're, we're stewards to use what we've been given by God for the purposes of the one who gave it. So we're to use it for the purposes of the master. And last week we talked about why Christians are to give and how we're to give. And we talked about giving to the church. We talked about our church finances. So I want to go back. I want to step back to what I said just a sentence ago, though. That, that we're to be good stewards of what we've been given for the purposes of the master. The one who we're to use it for his purposes. So the question that ought to be running through our minds is this. If we are to use what we own for God's purposes then hadn't we better figure out what those purposes are, <laughs> right? If we're responsible, each of us who follows Christ, if we're responsible to use that which we've been given for his purposes, then it stands to reason we better find out what those purposes are. See, before you met Christ, before you met Christ, before you started following Jesus, before you heard the gospel preached and you repented of your sins and believed the truth of the gospel, before you met Christ, your life was about amassing things for yourself, relationships, money, success, fame. But after you became a Christian, what happens, so what, what likely happened to you is after you became a Christian, someone taught you to think that it's not about doing stuff for yourself anymore, but it's about doing stuff for God. So what you do is you take that exact same mindset that you had before you were Christian, and then you simply aim that toward God, and you think you're living like a Christian. That's what we do. We take that same mindset and then we just kind of turn it, we aim it towards God. That was like, and unfortunately, we're taught that a lot, right? The problem is, the thing about that is, God doesn't need your help. I know to some of you that's shocking, probably, right? I'm kidding. God doesn't need your help. In Psalm 50 12, it says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God's not setting up in heaven hoping you'll just lend him a hand or give him a few bucks, all right? That's not what's going on. He's able to do anything you can do, and he can do it far better than you can do it. In fact, he can do it perfectly. So he's not up there hoping you'll help out. Now, of course, that does not mean that he doesn't use what we do. And it does not mean that what we do is unimportant. So please hear that. It doesn't mean that what we do is not, is not important. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't use what we do. But what I want to place before you, and hopefully you can kind of figure this is where I'm, what I'm trying to do. I want to place before you that it might be important, what we do might be important for different reasons than we think. We're going to look at, 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 a, at a, a different way of thinking about things that we've been given. In fact, we're going to look at thinking about the things we've been given in a kind of radically different way, at least radically different from the way the world talks about it. So 
What is God's purpose for our stewardship or managing these good gifts? To, to look at that, to answer that question, we're going to dip back into the parable of talents in Matthew chapter 25, which, we, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a good amount of time just kind of marinating in that parable, right? We're going to do that again, and we're going to look at a little bit different aspect of it. We're going to look at God's goals for our stewardship. Now, this would include money, but it's not limited to money. This stewardship would also include our time, our jobs, our families, and our bodies, You probably don't think about stewarding your body well, okay? But I think we should. It's about everything that God has entrusted to us. So let's jump back in. Let's read in this parable again. And we're going to read the whole thing again, but we're going to focus on the end, okay? So we're going to focus on kind of the the back half of it, all right? So it's beginning in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25, 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called to his serv- or called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave 5 talents, to another 2, to another 1, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the 5 talents went at once and traded with them, and he made 5 talents more. So also he who had had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I made them, I have made two talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Sticky Bible pages. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand. Jesus, as we come, we pray that you would be big. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and help us understand your word and and understand what we're supposed to do about it. Father God, be glorified in this. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. And that, that, that when people think of this message, they don't see me, but they see you, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So here's the big question, and, we, and we, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We get to the end of this parable, why does the faithless servant go to hell? I mean, he gets thrown out where, into the outer darkness, uh, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, okay? So we come to the story, the, the, the master gives five talents to one, two to another, one to this guy, and then he heads out, and he comes back and settles accounts, right? And the, the guy with five, he has double, hey, Enter into the joy of your master. Like, well done, good and faithful servant. He's very happy, right? The master's happy. The guy had two, has two more. Good. He rewards him. And then we come to the third guy. And did you catch the twist at the end of that? I hope you did because I just mentioned it. The third servant goes to hell. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago that we read that, and it seems pretty extreme, right? Your boss at your annual review, at your last annual review, probably didn't send you to hell right? At your job? This seems extreme to us today because the guy didn't lose his talent. Like, he gave it back, but he gets hell just because he didn't give back more than he was given? I mean, to us, to, to us in modern day, that sounds, sounds unfair to us. We know God's not unfair, right? 
but it sounds unfair to us, so what we need to do is figure out what's really going on there. Now, I I need to stop right there because there's something that I should probably let you in on. See, we tend to think of this guy having one talent as not having much to, to work with. You know, that's not that big of a responsibility because the other guy had 10 talents, or sorry, five talents, eventually he had to, right? He had five talents, and then the guy behind him had two talents, and this guy had one talent, and we tend to think of it as, well, it's not that much. I mean, I grew up thinking, well, he only had one, right? But did you know that a talent is actually, back in the Old Testament times, which is the only Bible that existed at this point, because this is Jesus in the New Testament, which was not written down yet, okay? So Jesus is talking that the largest weight of measurement in Old Testament times was a talent. A talent was worth about 20 years wages for the average day laborer. 20 years wages for the average day laborer. I think, I'm trying to remember, I think it was like 75 shekels or some, something that we don't understand, right? But um, it, was 20, it was 20 years wages for the average day laborer. So even the servant who got one talent to steward was entrusted with an enormous sum to him, right? It would have been an enormous sum to him. It was not much, though, compared to the riches of the master, but to the servant, it was a big responsibility, even though it was less than the others had been trusted with. So the poor steward gets sent to hell at the end of this story. And what is going on in this parable is actually the gospel. Pastors say, what? What is going on is the gospel. See, if you were to take verse 30 out, if verse 30 is the pin in this story, and you were to remove that, you were to take it out, then this whole parable turns into simple moralism. Do right, do good. Like, almost like it would be saying, do a lot for God and he'll be pleased with you. But that won't suffice for what this is about. So if we can figure out why this guy's actions deserve hell, then we can read this parable with new eyes and really understand what's going on here. Here's the key. You want to know the key? I'm going to give you the key. The key is this. The key is what the servant's actions said about his master. What his actions said about the master. See, this guy tried to have it both ways. He hedged his bets. If the master came back, He could simply return to the master what was rightfully his. And if the master didn't come back, then he had hidden the talent where he'd be able to safely keep it. He he spent the time that the master was away working for himself instead of for the master. Hedging his bets said that the master wasn't able to be relied upon to deliver on his promises. It said that he didn't trust the master to reward the servants or even that the master would even return. Now, of course, we know this wasn't true. The master was trustworthy. And as I showed you in that description of a talent, we can see the master was extremely generous, right? That 20 years of wages is an extreme thing to be entrusted with, right? The master in this parable, we said this a couple weeks ago, the master represents God. And when the servant said that he knew the master was a hard man, it betrayed the fact the servant didn't really know the master very well because the master was extremely generous. The master rewarded those who served him. And when he said, hey, you're a hard man, it showed us that he didn't really know his master very well. The actions of the servants, excuse me, the actions of the unfaithful servant lied about the excellence and faithfulness of the master. His actions told a lie about his master. Why? Because his heart didn't trust the master. His heart didn't trust his master. See, the first two servants, they gambled everything on the promises of their master. They bet with their lives that he was good to his word and that he risked, they risked everything on him. And that was the best thing. They believed that was the best thing they could possibly do for themselves. Lo and behold, turns out they were right. Turns out they were right. They were all in on the master. Several years ago, I read a story about these people called the one-way missionaries. You may have heard about this. 
the one-way missionaries. There was a guy named A.W. Milne that was one of them that is uh, kind of well-known. But the one-way missionaries bought one-way tickets on these boats headed out to take the gospel to these lands. And they packed their belongings, not in suitcases, they packed their belongings in their coffins. They were all in on the mission. They were all in on the master. Imagine buying a one-way ticket, you're on the boat, you're waving goodbye to everything you've ever known, your family, your friends, and all your belongings are packed up in your coffin. Because if you come back, you're coming back in that. (laughs) In the end, we find that this parable is not about money exactly, it's about faith. It's about faith. It's about faith in the master and what our actions say about the master. Jesus taught that no one can serve two masters. You can't have it both ways. You can try to have it both ways, but that ends in hell. You don't get to live for yourself your whole life while leaving, uh, I'll live just enough for God to sort of slide into heaven like, you know, like Pete Rose into third base, right? Sliding in. It's not how it works. Because the bad servant's double-minded life showed that he had no faith. The bad servant's double mind, his double-minded life, showed he didn't have any faith in the master. So the book of James tells us that demons believe in God and they shudder. So what's the difference between demonic faith and saving faith? What's the difference? Well, saving faith is not simply believing facts about God, that God exists, that Jesus did die on a cross. It's not about just believing facts about God. Saving faith is about believing that his rewards are worth having. Saving faith believes that God is good for us. Saving faith believes that God is so good that we can trust him with our whole lives, leaving everything else behind. In a sense, leaving all our stuff behind on that shore and sailing off with God. When we live our life in this way, our lives become like flashing billboards. You know those ones that are blinding when you're driving at night? We live in, when we live in this way, our lives are like flashing billboards about how good and how desirable God is. And when we say we want to get into heaven, but we want to hedge our bets because we don't really trust God's plans for us, then we're a billboard that tells others that God's not good or trustworthy. We become like the faithless servant. Someone, someone that I read said, it's far worse than if someone were to spray paint over the Mona Lisa. Because our lives, when we act like that, we try to live it both ways. Our lives are telling people that God's not worth complete surrender and obedience. If we were to look at another parable that Jesus told that kind of dovetails with this, it would be the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12 and verses 13 through 21. It says this, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So understand, this guy builds bigger and bigger barns to hold all his wealth. And God calls him a fool. Now, Here's a question, and this will relate to last week. Does this story change if this dude first gives 10% of all he's got to God and then builds those bigger and bigger barns? No, that doesn't change the story. Why? 
It doesn't change the story because the problem was not how he spent his money. The problem was that his hoard, what his hoarding said about who God is. It lied about who God is. Your actions tell the truth about what you think of God. Set with that a minute. I had to set with that this week. Your actions, how you live your life, tells the truth about what you think about God. So, to answer our question from earlier, what are God's purposes for your stewardship? His purpose is that you be faithful. His purpose is that you be faithful. I know that sounds simplistic. It's really not. But that's where, as we look through all this, and we we start with the question, and we look through the scriptures, and we find the answer, we find that God's purposes for us, with our stewardship, with of of our lives, our abilities, our, our, our skills, our talents, and our money, his purpose is that we be faithful. One author wrote this. I think I've got it on the screen. Faithfulness is obedient, excuse me, faithfulness is obedient living that proclaims how excellent, good, trustworthy, and satisfying God is. Every decision you make has potential to say something true or false about who God is. Every decision you make has potential to say something true or false about who God is. What would it look like if we lived our lives in light of that? What would that look like? How would that change how we make decisions? As you grow in your faith, the picture that your life paints of Jesus, because that's what's going on, is our, our Our lives paint a picture of Jesus for others. But as you grow in your faith, that picture that your life paints of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer. Because God is conforming us to the image of his son. Romans chapter 8. People love Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. It's why this is so deeply important. It's why this matters so much. Too many times we put the topic of stewardship into the category of correctness, of just being correct. Like if you want to get it all right in the Christian life, you better go take a class on stewardship so you can cross all your T's and dot your I's and make sure you're doing everything just right. Brothers and sisters, the stakes are so much higher than that. It's not about living a good moral life. Certainly, we want to live moral lives. But that's not what it's about. The stakes are higher. It's so much more important than if you're following rules or not. Stewardship's not about whether or not you're a good Christian or a semi-good Christian or a bad Christian because those last two categories aren't really categories. It's not about that. It's about whether or not you have saving faith. It's an issue of eternity. That's what we see in the parable of the talents is this guy, what he did with the money was just a symptom. It was just a symptom of the deeper sickness that he had no faith in the master. If you're taking notes, the, the second main point is, is that our faithfulness po- proclaims who God is. So I want to dig a little bit deeper in this. This idea that our faithfulness proclaims who God is. Let's see if we can see a through line. I want to go all the way back into Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So our value, right? Our value is derivative. We uniquely represent God. He created us to be living mirrors, reflecting his image and his glory. Okay? So we're supposed to be living mirrors, reflecting his glory, his image, right, to the world. But how? Well, through what we do. So that was Genesis one twenty-seven. If we go on to Genesis one twenty-eight, it says, uh, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We image God through relationships and work. 
We image God through relationships and work. We image God through relationships as in marriage. We create life to fill the earth. We image God through work as we exercise dominion. But the key is that these things only matter because they're how we image God. We are valuable because we image God. It's expressed through what we do. It's why we're pro-life, right? It's why we're pro-life because life is, human life is created in the image of God. Imago Dei is the word for that, right? In the, the image of God. But that's not how our world sees it, though. Our world is obsessed with what we do. Our world is obsessed with Genesis 1.28. It says you're valuable or not because of your relationships and your work. But Genesis 1.28 without Genesis 1.27 is idolatry. God always intended what we do to be valuable mainly because it shows off who we are as mirrors of his glory. So, Incidentally, what does God curse in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sin? Genesis 3.16, he curses our relationships. And in 17, he curses our work. Why curse the very things he commanded of us back in chapter 1? So that relationships alone will never satisfy. So that work alone will never satisfy us. In his mercy, he protects us from finding value in what we do, absent who we are as God's image bearers. But after Genesis 3, our mirrors, right, are bent and twisted from sin. But then when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. So you've been created once in God's image, Genesis 1, right? And then you're recreated, reborn into his image a second time as a redeemed human being when you come to know Christ, which means your life now has opportunity to speak even more loudly about the excellence of God. Because you've not just been once born and put in the garden, right? You've been twice born if you trusted Jesus. This is the main reason that God has given you all that you have. What gifts have you been given? Are you talented musically or artistically? Are you gifted at numbers or learning languages? Or are you gifted with your family and friends, the gifts of the school you're able to attend or your bank account, the gift of your job or your work ethic? See, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 tells us, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So why did God give you all those things? I just listed a bunch of them, right? Why did God give you those? To glorify him. He gave us those to glorify him. By using those things well, we get to show off how good and how valuable and how worthy God is. We show off his worth, his value, his goodness. Now, in our world, we tend to value results more than faithfulness. But I want to tell you this. Faithfulness matters more than results. Faithfulness matters more than results. Sometimes, though, if you're like me, it doesn't always seem that straightforward where we live. A lot of us, probably most of us, we evaluate our lives based on results we see because that's how we've been brought up in this world. Pastors are not immune to this, by the way. Uh, excuse me, happens all the time. Uh, we, we evaluate our faithfulness and ability and, and, and whatever, worth sometimes, uh, wrongly based on the results. Because that's how we've been brought up in the world. We evaluate what our lives say about God based on the results instead of basing it on faithfulness. So the question that I want you to ponder in your heart is... Are you more afraid of failure or faithfulness? Which do you fear more, failure or faithfulness? See, failure is about you not living up to your potential. But faithful, faithlessness is about God living in a way that lies about who he is. I've spent li- times in my life really worried about being a failure. 
Okay, a lot of times I just, I, I give into it and I feel like a failure, all right? But even in those times, I'm much more concerned about making sure I was faithful. Because faithlessness is about God and it's living in a way that lies about who he is. Our job is faithfulness. Our job is faithfulness, not results, because you know what? God can take care of the results himself. God can take care of the results himself. It's like, it's like if you lived at the top of a hill, okay? Let's say you lived at the top, the very top of a big hill. So you don't buy flood insurance because you live at the top of a hill and if it floods there, somebody needs to build an ark, right? That's a reasonable good stewardship decision you just made is I'm not going to buy flood insurance that I don't need and spend money I don't need on flood insurance. It's a good stewardship decision. Then a crazy flood hits and inundates your house. You lose everything. So you can't go on the missions field when you're 50 years old like you had planned. The question is, have you failed? Well, from a results standpoint, if we're just looking at the results, yeah, you failed. But from a faithfulness standpoint, you haven't. You can stand before the Lord someday and give a good account for your life. And even though God clearly had different plans than you did, God clearly had different plans than the good you intended, you can still stand before him knowing you were faithful with what you'd been given. There's two main problems with living for results. Two main problems when we live for results. Number one, we can't see what's truly valuable. We can't see what's truly valuable. Take two men, for example. Which of these two lives will seem more valuable from the perspective of heaven? The man who spends his life fighting successfully for faith in Christ as he struggles through mental illness. He never thrives, never holds down a job for long, never invests in the lives of others, and just survives to the end. Or the man who heads up a large uh, philanthropic uh, enterprise, giving lots of money away, fights for faith to give glory to God as his organization prospers. How can we possibly know which one is more valuable? But figuring that out is not our job. Our job is not to figure out which one of those is more valuable. Our job is to faithfully obey whatever situation God puts us in. I have a friend who serves or has served, I don't actually know where he's at right at the moment, at one of the largest churches in America, on staff. He's not the head guy, but he's on staff there, okay? More people in his youth ministry than I will ever have in any church I pastor, okay? You guys have this in your life, where you are tempted to compare. But what we don't know we can't possibly know. We can't possibly figure out which one's more valuable to God because our job isn't to figure that out. Our job is to faithfully obey in whatever situation God puts us in. So you may be in a situation where you're at a job and you are making way more money than you ever dreamed was possible, figures you can't imagine. And there may be another guy who's in a job where he's having to work two or three, but he's being faithful to God in whatever situation he is put in. And you're being faithful to God in whatever situation you're being put in. Our job isn't to, to, to compare and go, well, that guy's better because he's this, or that guy's better because he's not this, or whatever. Our job isn't the results. That's God's, God will handle the results. Our job is faithfulness. Number two, trouble with living for results is that things of this world are passing away. The things of this world are passing away. Proverbs 23, four through five, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eye lights on it, it is gone for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. If you're a doctor, everyone you ever save will eventually die. Every bridge you design as an engineer eventually will fall down. Every tire you work with at the tire place is going to rot. Every faucet you fix as a plumber 
is going to rust out and fade and break again. Most of what you teach, your kids will forget. Most of what you write, no one will ever read. Our city is full of monuments to important people. Who are dead. Some of them, I dare say there's some that you may never have heard of. Or eventually there will be people who will never have heard of them. The bad news is that the results don't last, but faithfulness does. Because faithful obedience shows off the glory and the goodness of God, it will last forever. As results fade, results die, they go away. But our faithful obedience shows off the glory and goodness of God, and that will last forever. Even Lazarus, right? He died. Jesus raised him. And guess what happened? Eventually, he died again. Now, sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, lack of results can point to a lack of faithfulness. Sometimes, oftentimes even, not always, and that's not for us to judge, but sometimes a lack of results can point to a lack of faithfulness, but not always, but not always. Um, There's a, a guy I know who moved off to a faraway faraway place, uh, moved off to a faraway place to start a church. Took his family, moved far, far from home. Uh, They just went by themselves. They did not have a supporting uh, church that was sending them or had recognized them as being planters. They didn't have an agency that they had been assessed by and partnered with another local church or association or anything like that, any denomination that they were sent by. They just went because they had this uh, subjective idea that they should plant a church. And they get to the place far, far from home, far from anything they know. And for years, they, they're down there and they can't find any supporting church there either that will help them plant a church. They can't find anyone who will recognize them as called and sent. At some point, at some point, we have to look at those results at some point and at least question, is there a lack of faithfulness on my part? Results don't always tell that full story, okay? So we have to be careful there. There's an illustration in, in some of the core seminar material from Capitol Hill where they talk about a missionary who, who um, was sent on the mission field and he was in a very hard place doing missions work. And he had no converts, nobody for years and years and years. And it could be that he was very faithful. It could also be that he truly shouldn't be a missionary. He, he might have been faithful, but the results might say, you ought to maybe do something else. Serve God in a different way, possibly. So I think we have to ask, what does faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness look like? First, faithfulness as obedience. Sometimes being faithful is as simple as obeying the clear commands of God. Sometimes being faithful is as simple as just obeying the clear commands of God. And and I would say, first of all, faithfulness is that. First of all, faithfulness. If you pick up this book and you are faithful to the commands of God in the book, that's that's faithfulness. That's the starting point of faithfulness. Because a lot of times people talk about how they want to serve God and whatever. It's like, okay, so uh, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Come to church every week. Oh, but the lake's open. We start with the commands. I know that hits some of y'all close to home. I get it. Sometimes it's as simple as just obeying the clear commands of God. You want a promotion at work. So you know that you can get that promotion if you lie on your sales call, but instead you tell the truth. You don't get the promotion, of course. But on the last day, you end up getting commended when you stand before God because you were faithful. Even though you couldn't 
Now be as generous with your money as if you had been promoted. You were faithful in obeying the commands of God. Obedience of this and areas like it are a testimony of just what kind of God we serve. For example, when we thank God for what we've received, we glorify God as the giver of all good things. Right? Ephesians 5.19. When, it, it talks about it. When we give back our, the first fruits, we glorify God as being trustworthy, that he'll take care of us. Okay? You can write down Matthew 6.33. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I'm giving you some references for later. When we're content with our wealth, we glorify God as being sufficient to meet all of our needs. That's what we talked about in the end of Philippians, right? When we use our wealth sacrificially to help others, we glorify God as being loving and merciful. Oftentimes, though, things aren't that clear. So let's look at how sometimes faithfulness involves comparison shopping. I know that's what you thought I was going to talk about this morning, was comparison shopping. But sometimes being faithful requires us to do a little comparison shopping. Some of the ladies got really excited. Y'all that like to shop, some of you guys like to shop too, I know. Faithfulness is comparison shopping. Well, in the parable, the master never told his servants exactly what to do with the money. He didn't give them a specific command what to do with the money. God's glorified when we pursue what is valuable in his economy, not the world's economy. The world might not think much of it, We need to be excellent at comparison shopping. We need to be able to see the opportunity cost associated with every time we spend money or time on something. Because some things are worth more to God than others. And we've got to take this seriously. I know I'm kind of joking about comparison shopping, but, but we've got to take it seriously. Sometimes it's comparing things of worldly value. Sometimes it's comparing things of worldly value. Uh, do you pay a plumber to fix my sink? Or sorry, not you pay. Do I pay a plumber to fix my sink so that I can use that time to go to Bible study instead? Or do I fix it myself and give the money it would have cost to the church? Compare, so we're comparing things to worldly value, right? In every transaction we are faced with, we could choose the option that is most valuable to God. Whether we exercise tomorrow or not. Should I buy a pop at lunch What job should I pursue? In every transaction we're faced with, we can choose the option that's most valuable to God. So that's comparing things to worldly value. Second, sometimes we have to compare intangibles. We have to compare tangibles with intangibles. Things that are not visible, okay, intangible things, right? Going back to Proverbs, we see a lot of these comparisons. For example, we see that wisdom is more precious than rubies. That fear of God is more important than great wealth. That righteousness is more important than money. A good reputation is more important than great riches. Elsewhere, we see that our, our faith in God is more important than gold. That's 1 Peter 1, 7. And that salvation is better than gaining the whole world. That's in Mark eight thirty six where we find that. So we're comparing tangibles with intangibles. The third way we have to do comparison shopping is comparing worldly value with eternal value. My uh, friend Peg Coyle in my home church, she says, um, she's trying to, something will come up that will be concerning to her whatever, and the question she likes to ask is, in light of eternity, does this really matter? In light of eternity, does this, whatever it is, really matter? Sometimes this involves investing in what is only valuable in light of eternity. It's been said that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. What would you do if you saw in the news that 10 days from now, we'd abandon the U.S. dollar and start using the British pound? All right. When this illustration was, I didn't write this particular illustration, but when it was written, it was not written recently (laughs) to where it's like, oh, I can see that happening, right? Right. But what would you do if 10 days from now they, we you said we were abandoning the U.S. dollar and we'd start using the British pound or the Russian rupee or whatever? Uh, you'd convert all that you had into that other currency, wouldn't you? You'd abandon what is about to lose value and you'd invest in what would maintain value. Well, Jesus has told us that's exactly what will happen. So we should abandon that of worldly value for that of eternal value. 
Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why I've said, like, I can look at somebody's checkbook. I typically don't look at people's checkbooks, just so you know. But I can look at your checkbook and tell you where your heart is at based on where, where your, what your money is used for. At some point in the next, we'll say, 100 years, there will come a time when everything you own, every dollar you have will be completely worthless to you, either because you're dead or because Jesus has come back. But right now, you have the opportunity to use that money to invest in an eternal treasure that will never lose its value. This is the same with your time, with your skills, with your energy, and with your relationships. You cannot buy salvation. Don't get it twisted, please, with all this talk of stewardship. You can't buy salvation. Money cannot do that. But it can be used to build up faith, hope, and love and exercise them. When you lend to a friend that you have no idea if they will ever pay you back, you're using money to build faith and set your priorities straight. When you use your car to drive someone to church, you're using your money, and with gas prices, a lot of your money, you're using your money to help them hear the gospel proclaimed and to be instructed in God's word. Because in God's economy, that's a wise transaction. It's good stewardship. So to wrap up, I'm going I'm to invite Dana and the rest of the musicians to come up. Friends, we are called to put all of our eggs in one basket. Have you heard that expression? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. We are called in this case to put all of our eggs in one basket. Now that phrase is the antithesis of what the world says. But we're called to bank everything on God. If it, we're, so we're called to, put, to bank everything on God so that if it were to turn out, if it were to turn out that God's promises did not come true, then someone would look at your budget or your calendar or how you spent your time, what you did, whatever, and they would think it was an utter disaster. they think you gambled everything on God's promises. Yes. Yes. This is how we should live. Go all in on God's promises because here's the thing. Jesus will not fail. God has never failed to keep his promises. Not once. Even if they didn't look the same way the people he promised thought they were going to look. He's never let down on his promises. He's never failed to keep them. Not once. Not ever. And he never will. So go all in. Freely. Go all in. Live to be faithful so that your life is a display of the goodness of God. Show him off to the world. And here's the great news. Jesus will be the one doing this in you. He gave his life on the cross to redeem you. And if you believe the gospel and believe the gospel and repented of your sins as a Christian, God has put his name on you. And he will spend your lifetime making you more and more into the image of his son. Remember Romans 8, 29? Let me bring it back. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus will not fail. And if God is doing all that in you, do you think he's going to let someone mess that up? If you are a Christian, you will fail in life. You will sin. Struggle will find you. But as a Christian, you will have faith. You will obey. You will persevere. Look, it's complex, but in all of that complexity, God is forming you. The potter is molding the clay. He's painting an image of himself in you. The question is, that we get to watch unfold every day and be answered is this. What is he doing with this portrait of himself that he's creating in you? What is he doing with this portrait of himself that he's creating in you? Would you stand up with me, please? I'm going to pray.
And, and you're, you have the opportunity, we're going to sing, we're going to worship, but in your heart, you have the opportunity to respond to the call of God. Look, you may have never heard the gospel for us, you, you may, or you may have never understood that Jesus died for you in your place, for your sin, and, and, and then he rose from the grave three days later. And if you repent of your sin, turn away from your sin and turn towards him and believe the good news of the gospel that he will save you and that he will begin painting this picture of himself in your life. Then, then this morning, I just invite you to repent and believe the good news. And maybe you're someone and you say, Pastor, I, I've, I've gotten off track and I've started to sin in seeing my results as more important than my faithfulness. And I've started to live more for those results than that faith, faithfulness. And uh, I just call you to repent, believe the good news. Jesus died for you. And if you've trusted in him, he's got his name on you. And you don't have to live like that anymore. You will sin, struggle will find you, but you don't have to stay there because he's made a way. So maybe that's you. Maybe some of you are saying, you know what? I need to go all in. Maybe you've never, uh, maybe you say, you know, I've, I've, I've trusted Jesus Christ, but I've never followed him in believer's baptism. I've never, I've, I've, I've never told the world through that, that sign, a uh, symbol of believer's baptism that, yes, I've died to my sins and I have new life in Christ. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, uh, get a hold of me. Come talk to me after church or talk to me this week. I'd love to talk with you more uh, about that, how we can, we, we, we will baptize you if that's the case. Uh, we'd love to. Whatever it is, and we're all at different places. We've all, we all are, are at different points of that picture being painted in our lives. Whatever that is, I just invite you this morning to, you do business with God. And if you need somebody to talk to, I'll be around. We've got other guys around here, deacons and other church folks that would love to talk to you about. It doesn't have to be me. In fact, there's a lot the Bible has to say about the church ministering to one another, but that's a whole other sermon. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you for painting a picture of you on our lives as your children. Help us be faithful above all things. Help us not get sidetracked with all the stuff of the world and the results and the outcomes, but trust you with those and just be faithful to what you've called us to do, Jesus. You've renewed that in me this week. I pray you renew that in all of us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.